Go ahead and uh, grab a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Today we're in week 3 of a series that we've been calling Praying with Paul, Cultivating a Life of Prayer. And uh, we've been, in this series, we're really looking at the prayers of the Apostle Paul that are just sprinkled throughout his uh, letters in the New Testament. And so today we're going to look at one of of my very favorite. It's found in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. And let me just give you a little bit of context uh, for what we're going to look at today as you're, as you're turning there. Um, he, is, he is writing to a group of Christians in Ephesus, and he is, he is obviously going to pray for them. And the thing, the thing that's driving his prayer is that it really wasn't easy to be a Christian in the city of Ephesus. And so Ephesus was uh, a very pluralistic society. It had a smorgasbord of religions uh, that you could just kind of pick from, just very similar to uh, today in the United States. And uh, not only that, but there was a, a significant portion of the population of Ephesus that really wasn't very tolerant of, of Christianity. So that all in, in and of itself made it difficult to be a Christian in the city of Ephesus. The other thing about the city of Ephesus was it was kind of the Las Vegas of the Mediterranean. So it was a port city and it had every, every vice known to man there. And so people would travel thousands of miles, hundreds of miles to go and experience uh, the, you know, all kinds of uh, immorality that, that existed in that city. So, so it really was difficult to be a Christian uh, there, just like it is a challenge for us in our modern day context. And so, but what's, what's really interesting about the prayer that we're going to look at in just a minute, and this is I just want to call your attention to it because I want you to notice it when we read through it in just a minute, is is really what the Apostle Paul does not pray for. You know, when we read this, what you're going to notice is he does not pray for a change in their circumstances. He doesn't doesn't pray that they would have justice. He, He doesn't pray that the people in the city of Ephesus would be nicer to the believers there. You know, he doesn't pray that there be a change in the government. He's not praying any of that. He's not praying that they would be comfortable, that they would be successful, that they would be prosperous. He's not praying anything related to their external circumstances. And I think that that's interesting because that's not typically how I pray, if you guys know what I'm saying. Like when I'm under duress, I'm, I'm praying for all kinds of changes in, in my circumstances. But, it, but interestingly enough, that's not what, what Paul is praying for. He's praying for something a lot more vital than just an external change. He's really praying for something to happen in them internally. And the reason why he's praying for, for God to work in them internally is because he knows that when God works inside of us, it really doesn't matter what's going on externally. Like, because the work of God in our hearts is profoundly more powerful than anything that the world, the flesh, and the devil could throw at us. And so what he prays for them is, is something very, very, very simple. He's praying that God would dwell in their hearts. He's praying that they would experience the love of God. He's praying that they would have the fullness of God's work in their lives. Now, that in itself is a little bit unusual when you really start thinking about it because really what's unusual about his prayer is that he's praying for Christians. He's lifting Christians up and this is what he's praying for them. 
And what's really unusual about that is that as a Christian, they already have that. You guys tracking with me? Like he's, he's, he's praying that, that, that God would dwell inside of them, that they would experience the love of God, and that they, would, that they would really know the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Well, church, he's praying for something that they already have by virtue of their position in Christ, by their profession of faith as Christians. So, so why in the world is he asking God to give them something that they already have? Well, I think the answer is this, because we can have things and those things not have us. That's why. You know, when you think about a child that grows up in an orphanage from birth to age 10, and, uh, you know, this child is 10 years old and has never had a family, never had a home, never had a birthday party, never told that they were special, never told that. And then all of a sudden, a family moves to adopt that child who spent 10 years in an orphanage and the judge bangs the gavel and the adoption is official and legal and, you know, all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and now this child is a member of that family. And, uh, and so then the question would be, do you think that child is all of a sudden totally secure? Probably not. You know, it's going to take years for that to kind of inculcate into him the love of this family. And so I think what really Paul is trying to do is he's, he's, he's really trying to pray that all that they have in Christ would have them. He's really praying that as they have and understand the Christian faith in their minds, that it that it would be possessed in their hearts. You know, one theologian describes it this way. I mean, it's it's like somebody telling you about the sweetness of honey and and, and you've never tasted it. So they tell you, you know, just how delicious honey is and how sweet honey is and, and, uh, and you start kind of developing a belief that honey is sweet. And so, and so you get interested in it and you start studying all the physical properties of honey and you start reading the history of honey and how honey has been used in, in cooking. And then, and then you hear these testimonials of people standing up and sharing, honey is sweet. And you could come to a place at that point where you make a profession of faith that honey is sweet. You could believe that. And... Uh, and you could, you could have that belief in your mind, but you wouldn't know it until you've tasted it. And I think what the Apostle Paul is trying to do is he's praying that they would taste and see the sweetness of God and his grace. And so, and so the truth is, I can know a lot about God and never really know him. Never really know him. I could know all these theological propositions and Bible verses about God, but never really know him in an intimate way. So what does Paul do in response to that reality? He just prays for them. He prays that the Holy Spirit would make the truth of the gospel real to them. He he really asks God on their behalf to show them what they really have to open their eyes and to open their hearts to the reality of what they have 
in Jesus Christ because he knows, he knows this, that if they will let what they have grasped to grasp them, it really won't matter what their circumstances are because they're good. They're fine because of what God is doing inside of them. So I'm going to uh, read through this passage and, and uh, you'll, you'll see this uh, firsthand as we, as we kind of walk through it. So I'm going to ask if you're willing and able, would you stand together as we read verses 14 through verse 21. So the Apostle Paul, he says this, For this reason I, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Verse 20, and now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and all of God's people said amen you may be seated I love that passage I love that prayer and so what I what I want us to see today are really just four principles for praying powerfully so that Christ would become real to us and, the, and, and real to the people that we're praying for. So four just very simple principles about prayer that Paul just kind of lays out for us. So let's look at the first one. I think what we see first and foremost here is really the priority of prayer in Paul's life. The priority of prayer. Notice what he says in verse 14. He says, he says for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. And so he's really just talking about the priority of prayer. And he's just, he says, for this reason. So, so what you have to do is he's been explaining the reason leading up to this point. So he's just kind of drawing them back to what he's already said in, in chapter, chapters 1 and 2, and especially in chapter 2. And, and what he has told the Ephesian Christians who were Gentiles. All right, so there was, what you have to understand is there was a huge separation between Jews, God's chosen people, and then kind of everybody else, the Gentiles. Huge separation, a huge division. And so what Paul has told them is this. At one time, at one time, you were aliens and strangers. At one time, you were estranged and separate from God's covenant promises, from God's blessing of grace in your life. You were on the outside looking in. You were living with no hope in the world. Absolutely lost. And what he explains to them is because of what Christ has done, all of that has changed. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, they have been made fellow citizens. They've been made saints. They are now members of the family of God. You, you were on the outside looking in, but now you're completely on the inside track. You're a part of God's family. And I, I love that. You, you, should, you should go home and really read through the first two chapters again because it's it really speaks to where we are today because you think about what, you know, what our culture does to us, what society is doing to us, what our politics is doing to us. What is it doing? It's separating and dividing us. 
I mean, wall after wall after wall, group after group after group being separated because that's what the world does. It divides and divides and separates. But let me tell you what the gospel does is it brings unity and reconciliation because that's, that's, that's the only thing in the world that can bring unity and reconciliation. And that's what the gospel does. And so it's a beautiful thing. So that's the reason why he prays for them. Because now they're a part of the family of God. So he says this, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. And so in in light of what God has done for you, I pray for you. I pray for you in an unceasing way. And, uh, And what's fascinating about this is he's, he's praying for them as he's in prison in Rome. He is, he is literally in chains. He's, he's confined externally and physically, but yet he's been set free spiritually and internally. And he's not worried about himself. He's praying for them. He's, he's concerned about them. Now, can I, can I be honest with you guys about something? If I'm in prison... I'm probably not going to be like that. I'm probably going to be like, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? I mean, what did I do to deserve this? I mean, God, I thought you were really good and, and you know, I'm supposed to be serving you and now you've got me, you know, literally in chains and I, I can't do what you called me to do. Yet I'd be really tempted to get depressed. Can I get an amen to that? But the Apostle Paul, he's not even concerned about that. He's just praying for them. He's using this as an opportunity to pray for them. Now, now why does he not get down about that? Because that's exactly what prayer does, church. See, see he knows that prayer lifts us out of the, the prisons that we're in. That it lifts us above the circumstances that we find ourselves in. See, prayer ushers us into the presence of God. Prayer, what it really does is it catapults us into communion with God. I mean, prayer changes circumstances, but it absolutely changes us. Because it raises us up. And he's just not concerned about what's going on around him externally. He's not concerned that at any moment he could be executed. He's just He's just praying for God to work in their hearts in such a way. See, prayer is the medium through which we experience and connect with God, that we experience his his presence in our life. And, and And so here's the question, church, when you think about it, what kind of prison do you find yourself in today? What kind of circumstances are enveloping you? You know, maybe it's the grief of losing a loved one. Maybe, maybe you're just dealing with just chronic anxiety maybe maybe you're just worried about the future maybe maybe you're just battling loneliness of some kind and even when we find ourselves in these kinds of prisons the reality is we can still pray we can still pray i mean the roman government has incarcerated him but they can't keep him from praying you know they could put him in chains but they they can't mess with him internally they can't mess his worship of God up. And so, and so that's the freedom that Paul has even in the midst of prison. That's why he's so filled with joy and awe and thanksgiving over the grace of God working in his life and, and in the lives of people that, that he knows and loves. And so church, if this is true for ourselves, when we pray for ourselves, that prayer lifts us up, how much more true is it when we pray for other people? 
when we, I mean, think about this. When we pray for other people, the impact that our prayers have on them is that it raises them up above their circumstances and their prisons. I mean, our prayers becomes the means by which other people are experiencing the presence of God in their life. That's why he's praying for them. And so it's, it's pretty mind-blowing when you think about it that when we pray for others, we're really praying that what they have in Christ would really, would really have them. So, so how much of a priority is prayer for you? How much of a priority is intercessory prayer for you? And so this is, this is what Paul is, is talking about for this reason, because of what God has done and bringing you into the family. I have bowed my knees before the Father. Now let me just say, let me say one other thing about prayer on, on this point about priority. You know, prayer is just as important as Bible teaching and instruction. It is just as important as that. You know, we need regular intake, a regular intake of God's word in our life. We, we need, if we're, if we're going to grow, we need the knowledge of God being poured into our life, strengthening our faith. And so that's why we, we re, read and study our Bibles. That's why we read books about the Bible. That's why we go to a Bible study or a, attend a Bible class. We do this because we need to grow in our knowledge, and that knowledge is essential. But, but make no mistake about it, knowledge alone will not grow you. You see, we need to be praying at the same time. We need to be praying that God will speak to us, that God will open his word to us, that he will reveal his revelation to us, that, he will, we, that we need to be praying that he will help us to apply it and live it out every day. And so knowledge and prayer can't ever be separated. They just can't be. And so they work hand in hand, especially in our dealings with other people. They have to work hand in hand. That's why the Apostle Paul, he understands. He's writing this letter to the Ephesians because they need Bible teaching and instruction. But in the middle of it, he's praying for them. You see that? Isn't that interesting how he combines, how he kind of combines the two of them? I mean, what he knows is the greatest teaching in the world, the greatest insights that you could gain from a commentary is useless unless the Holy Spirit takes it and applies it to us. You see, Bible knowledge can't be real to you or to anyone apart from the work of God to make it real to them. And so you could say it like this, the, the Spirit of God must take the truth of God and make it real to the people of God. Now this is especially true and as we're sharing you know, our faith with our non-Christian friends and family members, you know, we care for them, we love them. Uh, sometimes we share Bible verses with them and we, we quote scripture to them. But if you, if you leave it to that alone, then there won't be much fruit. There won't, there won't be much fruit because, because the truth is this, you can't reason anyone into the Christian faith. You can give reasons but you can't reason them into the Christian faith. You, you can't make a case that convinces them to become a Christian. But you can present a case, but a case isn't going to lead them to Christ. What's going to lead them to Christ? It's going to be the Spirit of God working. That's what it's going to be. So as you're, as you're sharing 
as you're sharing Christ, you know, you're sharing Bible verses and, you know, and sharing about what God has done in your life. What are you also doing at the same time? You're praying under your breath, right? You're praying for God to open their eyes to the truth of his word. And it's only as the Holy Spirit deals with a person that they can receive the truth of God. I, uh, there's a great article in Today's Christian Woman, um, which is not a periodical I normally read, but, um, <laughs> uh, but I did read this. This was really good. So there was a, a lady in there, Tina Blessed. She was sharing about her son, nine-year-old son, Austin, and he was having, uh, he was having uh, his tonsils removed and so he was waiting, he was in the pre-op area, and, and the anesthesiologist comes in and kind of goes through, you know, everything that, that he can expect. So he's talking to nine-year-old Austin, and the anesthesiologist has this surgical cap on his head, and it has these little frogs on it, and nine-year-old Austin just loved that. I mean, he was just all over that, he just loved that. And, um, and so the doc comes in and explains every, everything to Austin, and then Austin looks up, he, the doc asks him, do you have any questions? And Austin looks at him and says, do you go to church? And uh, the doctor said, he said, uh, well, uh, no, not really, but I, I probably should go. I probably should go. And then Austin asked him this. He said, well, are you saved? And uh, nervously, the doctor said, uh, no, I, I'm not really saved, but, you know, I probably should consider being saved just, just because you're such a great young man. And, uh, and so little Austin said, well, you really should because Jesus is awesome. Jesus is awesome. And so, uh, so they, they finished up that conversation, and then they, they had the surgery, and it was, uh, it was, uh, Austin was in post-op. And so um, the anesthesiologist went into the waiting room to see Austin's mom, and he normally doesn't do that. He sat down with her and said, I, I normally don't do this uh, post-op, but I had to tell you what Austin did. And she's like, oh, no, what did he do, you know? And, uh, and uh, the doctor said, well, uh, right before I was about to put him under, I was going to put his mask right over him. And he said, can we just stop and pray? And uh, the doc said, well, sure. And so little Austin prayed this prayer. Dear Lord, uh, help all the doctors and nurses have a great day today. And I pray that the, uh, the doctor with the frog hat would get saved and want to go to church. In Jesus' name, amen. And uh, the doc said, I, I just couldn't believe it. He said, I fully thought that he was going to pray about the surgery. But he was praying for me. And I, I just want you to know that you have a great little man there. And uh, he left. And then his mom was in an elevator with the nurse and the nurse heard the story and she said, I just want you to know, you know, the other nurses have been praying for this doctor and sharing Christ with him for a long time. And uh, I just want you to know God's working in his heart because the doctor said to me, the nurse said, uh, that if he can pray for me before his surgery, then I think maybe I need his Jesus too. And, uh, and I just thought, man, what a, what a, what a great story. And uh, and what you see is you just see the power of how God works. And this is a mystery, church. This is a mystery. And we know that God is sovereign. But we also know that God chooses to work through the prayers of his people. That's how he works. And, uh, and so that's why prayer is such a huge, huge priority. That's why Paul is praying 
for these Christians, for the gospel to become real to them. And so that's the priority of prayer. But secondly, I want you to notice the posture of prayer. Now notice, notice what he says. Go back, let me show, it, show you verse 14 again. He says, he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, my first thought was he was kind of talking about, you know, the, po- the, the appropriate posture in prayer. Like when we pray, we need to be on our knees, hands folded, kind of a thing. Um, but that's not really what he's talking about. He's not talking about a physical posture in prayer. What we know is Jewish men pray standing up. You can see this at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem today. You can go there today. Hundreds of Jewish men and women standing up praying at the base of the temple that existed on top of that, on top of that mount. And so they pray standing up. But Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father. And I think he's saying this because what he's saying is the appropriate heart posture in prayer is reverence before God. It's humility. It's recognizing that God is God and we're not. And that's a huge piece of prayer. Just taking ourselves off the throne. Taking our hands off the controls. And recognizing God is God. And we're not. God is king and we're his royal subjects. God is our father and we are his children. And so, and so really, that's what he's trying to convey to us. And, 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 so, and so we come to his presence in reverence. We come to his, his presence in awe of his holiness and goodness. And I think so many times you know, in our church and other churches, we emphasize the incredible love of God so much that we, that we really do it to the detriment of the holiness of God. That we don't really realize that God is love, but he's also holy. He's holy love, which means he's perfect goodness. He's perfect righteousness. That our God is a consuming fire. That's what he is. And we don't just waltz carelessly into his presence. We come humbly before him. And uh, we come revering him with an appropriate fear. We, we, in other words... As we think about how this impacts our praying, we, we come praising his name. We come exalting his name. We come lifting up his name and expressing that praise to God for who he is and for what he's done. Now, you know, when I've done this, when I've taught this, you know, to guys in particular about prayer, praising God in the midst of prayer, uh, th- I think this aspect of prayer is what loses a lot of guys. I-, I don't know why it is, but we just have a disconnect. I mean, prayer is hard and awkward as it is. But for this part of prayer, you know, coming into God's presence, praising him, lifting up his name, for whatever reason, it's especially awkward for a lot of guys. And I think praise adds uh, really to that. But here's the truth. I know we know how to do this, men. You know Why? Because I've been to Lucas Oil Stadium. That's why. I mean, what does every guy in Lucas Oil Stadium do when Ty, you know, T.Y. Hilton catches a pass and runs at 80 yards for a touchdown? What do they do? Yeah, you see those guys in the background there behind that? What are they doing? They're praising T.Y., right? They are lifting their hands. Like you've never seen them lift their hands in worship on Sunday, right? 
They are, they are singing the praises of T.Y. like you've never heard them sing the praises of God. And I think, I think that's what we do. I think that's, you know, as we bow our knees before God, we're recognizing who he is, raising our hands, raising our praise to him. And that's what the psalmist understands in Psalm 67, where he says, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all of the peoples praise you. Because it's just right. It's it's not, we don't praise God so we can get something out of it. We praise God because he's worthy of our praise. He is, he is all glory. And we just recognize that's the posture in prayer that he's talking about. So he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before uh, the Father. Now, this is where we notice this third principle in our praying, and that is this, the perspective that Paul has uh, towards God in prayer. Notice, notice what he calls God. He calls him Father. Isn't that interesting? I bow my knees before the Father. Now, what is he really trying to emphasize? Well, he, he kind of doubles down on it a little bit because he says this, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And so he's really talking about, when you, when you really think about it, church, we're all just one race. We're just one. You know, if you do a paternity test on all of us, it's going to point to one Father, God the Father in heaven. Because he is the source of our existence. He is the source of the existence of every angel in heaven and every family on earth. He's the source. He is our father. That's what he's talking about. And while he is the father of all, he is especially the father of the redeemed. He is especially the father of his adopted children that have been born born again into his family that's why when the disciples went to Jesus they said Jesus will you teach us how to pray he gave them the Lord's prayer and he said our father in heaven hallowed be your name and so he's talking about that God relates to us God reveals himself to us as a father now, how does this impact our praying? Well, it should, it should impact it in every way. I, I, would, I would give you three ways that it impacts our praying. I think the first way is this. We know that when we go to God, our Father, in prayer, that, that, that He is a caring Father. Now, I don't know what kind of Father you had growing up. Maybe He was a great dad. Maybe He was a horrible dad. But I just want to tell you, God as Father is perfect. He's perfect in every way. And He is a caring Father father you see this in first peter 5 7 where peter says cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you and so a big part of prayer is simply telling god what's on your heart telling him what makes you anxious telling him what you're wrestling with and what's interesting is god is you know god is so amazing and he's so good there's nothing too big for him and there's nothing too small for him and I talk to guys all the time about, about you know, their prayer life. And, and you'll be amazed how many times I hear, well, I don't want to bother God. I don't want to bother him. So I don't, you know, I don't, I don't pray about that because I don't want to bother him. Church, listen to me. You're not bothering him. He's God. He's really good at multitasking. 
okay? He's really good. He can handle anything you throw at him. Why? Because he cares about you. And it's, it's not about her. I mean, if it's worth you bringing up to God in prayer, then it's big to God. And so he's a caring father. Not only that, but secondly, he is a close father. He's always with you. He never, ever leaves you. Never. You may feel him. You may not feel him. It doesn't matter. He's with you. And so, and so he's a close father. We see this in Psalm 145, 18. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And so he is, he is not distant. He is close. He is available and accessible. And then, and then, then lastly, he is, he is a capable father. And uh, capable is an understatement. Let me just say it that way. But he is, he is a capable father. I mean, he can, he can really just take whatever you bring to him. He's got it. Whatever you bring to him. You know, when my boys were growing up, they would break something, you know, one of their toys, and they would bring it to me and, and have me fix it. And they had the utmost confidence in my ability to fix it. They never doubted my ability to fix it, even though they really should have. And, um, and as, they, you know, as they grew up, they started to realize, you know, I had limited wisdom and time and resources and definitely skill at fixing things. But, uh, but here's the good news. God has, God has unlimited resources, right? He's capable in every way. And I, I love, I absolutely love verse 20 because Paul speaks to his capability. Like if you have any doubt, uh, he says this, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. He can do far more than you can ask or even imagine, church. So whatever you're going to God and you're praying about, he can do far more than what you're praying about. But you just got to stand on the word and stand in faith about the reality of who God is. He's your father. He is your perfect heavenly father. Now, how do I know that he is, he is that capable? Well, the reason why I know he is that capable is because he's already taken care of our biggest problem. I mean, he just wiped it out. And do you know what our biggest problem was? Sin. And he's already taken care of it. And uh, that's how caring and capable and close he really is. And so that's the perspective we have in prayer. But lastly, I want you to notice the petition in prayer. Look at, look at what he prays. And again, he's really trying to help them. He's just trying to pray that God would show them so that they experience with their heart what they know in their minds, the reality of the gospel. Notice, notice what he says and notice what he prays in verse, verse 16, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being and so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, so that you know, he's talking about being rooted like a tree, like a, like a vine. So that metaphor was used throughout the Old Testament. Jesus used it in the New Testament. That Israel and the new Israel is like a vine. He wants us, you know, he, he wants us to be rooted uh, like a vine is in him. And then grounded, uh, he says, grounded in love, like a structure. So he's, he's really praying for that. And, uh, and that we would know the breadth and the length, the height and depth, um, to know the love of Christ, 
that surpasses knowledge. That you'd be filled with all the fullness of God. Just a, it's just an amazing prayer when you when you're really thinking about it. He's really praying. What, what, when you just kind of boil it down, what he's really praying is that we wouldn't just know about God's love, that we would really experience it and it would be a living reality in our day-to-day lives. That's what he's praying. It wouldn't just be that the gospel wouldn't be just a set of ideas, but it would be a force, a power in our life every day. He prays that we would know a love that surpasses, surpasses all knowledge. I mean, can you imagine knowing a love that surpasses knowledge? What's amazing about that church, and I, I shared this with you a couple of weeks ago, we're going to spend all of eternity learning about the endless love of God. We will never get to the boundary marker of his love. Do you know that? Because God is eternal and God is infinite. And we are very much finite creatures. So we're going to be learning about the, 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 the love of God forever and ever. I mean, that's just mind-boggling to me. But yet at the same time, we can actually know that love. That that love can be a reality in our hearts and minds. And so he he's, he's trying to put words around it to describe it. And he describes the dimensions of it. And so he's talking about the breadth of God's love. And I think, I think what he's kind of referring to there is God's love is so wide that it extends to the utmost corners of the earth. That it includes, you know, every skin color, every ethnic group, every socioeconomic level. It, it, includes, it includes every single person. The worst sinner you can think of. The love of God extends to them. It, it, what it means is this, that we cannot... We cannot escape the love of God. We cannot run from the love of God because his love is that wide. And then he tells them, I want you to, you know, I'm praying that you would understand the length of God's love. You know, when, did, when, you, know, when you think about it, when did God's love begin? When did God's love for you begin? Not at the, not at the beginning of time, but before the foundation of the world. That's when his love for you started. That's a long time. And um, it's not going to end when, when time ends. Uh, it's going to continue on. That's the length of God's love. What about the height of God's love? When you think about the height of God's love, that you could think of the farthest galaxies that we haven't even discovered yet. And God's love extends even beyond that. Can you imagine that? Isn't that incredible? John 17, you know, Jesus, this is the night before he was going to be crucified, and he's praying. You know, he's praying for the disciples. He's, in essence, praying for us. And he prays that his beloved would have what he has in the Father and in the Holy Spirit. And uh, he prays that what God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit shares together in community, that we would be brought into that circle. Isn't that interesting? that we would be brought into that fellowship. That's how high God's love is. That's, that's pretty high. And then, and then he challenges us, you know, to, and prays for us to, to know the depth of God's love, that, that Jesus would leave his throne in heaven. He would descend to earth, emptying himself of his divine prerogatives and taking on human flesh 
and drinking the cup of the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to, even though we deserved it. And he experienced the hell of being separated from God the Father. That the depth of God's love is that Jesus would, would go to hell for us. That's how deep his love is for you, church. And so he prays that through the power of the Spirit that we would know that love. That that love would become a reality in our hearts and our minds every day. And all I know is this, church, when you experience that love, that love starts to change you. That love starts to set you free. That love starts to free you from you know, those besetting sins, those idols, those addictions, you know, those, those habits, those repeated sins that we do time after time after time again. You're, as, you, as you begin to grasp the love of God and you let the love of God grasp you, then your love for God outpaces your love for things of the world and things of the flesh. And so here's the question, church. You, you have the love of God, but does it have you? Does it have you? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we just bow ourselves in your presence, just giving you praise, giving you glory, giving you honor that's due your name. You're greater than any touchdown pass. You're greater than any worldly accomplishment. You are perfect in all that you do. You are present everywhere we go. And you love us even before the world began. We, we can hardly fathom that. God, I just pray that, that you would grant to all of us that we would be strengthened with power through your Holy Spirit in our inner being. God, I pray that, that your Son would dwell in our hearts through faith. I pray that we would be rooted and grounded in love, that we would have the strength to just comprehend with all the saints that have gone before us what is the breadth and length and height and depth? And that we would know that love that surpasses knowledge. I pray, God, you would fill us with all the fullness of who you are. And we thank you, God, because you're able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or even think according to your power at work within us. And may it be all for your glory. May it be for the praise of your name. And so, Lord, may your gospel, may your presence be real to us today. We thank you and praise you. And all of God's people said, amen.